Good morning to all of you. Take your Bibles and open to Genesis 20, if you would. Genesis 20, and it's our goal to finish the entirety of the chapter today and uh, work through this uh, very interesting and and uh, I would say unusual passage, but for Genesis, it's pretty well par for the course. But uh, we're going to read today, starting in uh, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. And as we read this passage and as we will work through it today, we recognize that You are God, almighty, wise, and infinite, working all things together according to the counsel of your will, that you have the power to work in circumstances that uh, perhaps we have created that are uh, definitely not good, that are difficult, that are overtly sinful at times, and yet we see in this passage that your power is not thwarted, your plan is not derailed, and Father, I confess that I struggle to understand that, I struggle to remember that, that you are such a God. But as we look at this passage today, I pray, Father, that you would work by your Spirit in our hearts, that as we encounter your Word today, that you would minister to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I say this passage is kind of par for the course for uh, Genesis because we have covered some difficult topics. As you recall, just a couple of weeks ago, we were uh, looking, we finished up chapter 19, and really all of chapter 19 is difficult, particularly that last couple of sections there about Lot and his daughters. And so uh, we've noticed something about Genesis that it's not ashamed, it's not afraid to deal with uh, difficult topics, topics that perhaps would be scary, topics that perhaps are revealing about uh, God's people and what they can be like. And uh, Genesis, and really the Bible in general, doesn't, doesn't balk at those topics, though perhaps in polite company we might not always want to talk about them. Yet the Bible has them right there on the page, and, and today is not, uh, not too far from that. And as we, uh, as we are about to, to look into this, I, I want to plant an idea in your mind. My desire for this message is that we come away with hope. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know what you've dealt with in this past week or in your life in general. I don't, I don't know the things that are going on 
in, uh, in your lives. And that's always the case on a Sunday morning. And perhaps I know a story here, I know a situation there, but this is a large group and, and, and we don't know, I don't know what all is going on, but perhaps you've encountered situations in your own life where you've made decisions that, uh, that in your mind ought to derail the rest of your life. Maybe you're afraid that some of the things that you have done, some of the actions you've taken, maybe, maybe some uh, words you've spoken really are kind of the end of the world, that surely God can't use you after that. Surely God can't do something uh, with, with a person who would do such a thing, who would say such a thing, who would take such an action. Well, as we look at our passage today, my desire is that we would come away with a great hope from this passage and from what our God is like. And really, to understand our passage, we kind of have to go back and think through the, uh, the story of Abraham and what all has gone on uh, with him. We're only a few chapters into the Abraham story, and we've, we've covered a lot of ground. If you remember all the way back in chapter 12, where uh, we were really introduced to him, and, and God comes to him, and you, you have this initial promise given back there in Genesis chapter 12, a promise given of seed and land and blessing. God comes to him and says, I have chosen you, and this is what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to give you these three things. And so you think, okay, well, that's great. That's a, I mean, a beautiful start to a story. It's very hope-filled, right? There's, there's, a, there's a lot to look forward to, great expectations in chapter 12. Well, really, we don't finish chapter 12 before we see those, those promises being challenged, being threatened already. If you remember the end of chapter 12, we have the threat to the seed promise already as, remember, Abram and Sarai go down into Egypt and they tell this same lie as they do today, where Abram says, she's my sister. And so Pharaoh takes her as his wife. And so we have a great threat to the seed promise right there where she's been taken the wife of another man. So what began with great expectations uh, finds a challenge right off the bat. But the challenge isn't done, is it? We look to chapter 13, continuing the story there, and we see that really the land promise is threatened because remember when Abram and Lot and their families came up out of Egypt, they had been enriched and they had so much property. They had uh, such great herds and flocks that, that the land of Canaan just wasn't enough to hold them. And so there was squabbling between the two of them and, and Abram uh, hands over the, the deed as it were and says, Lot, you choose where you want to go and I'll go the other way. If you go this way, then I'll go the other. If you go that way, I'll go this way. So he really gives control of that to Lot. And as we get to know Lot, you think that's a pretty scary thing to give control uh, to Lot of, of anything. And of course, he chooses to go down and, and live in the low country and the, in, in the valley there and, and by Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and thus we see the challenge that, that was uh, the brought, the threat to the land promise is dodged. Just as the threat to the seed promise had been dodged by the hand of God, you see in this situation that God was working even in the, the heart of Lot to cause him to want something different so that the land is freed up for Abram himself. Well, then you move on to chapter 14, and we see that it's not just the seed promise, it's not just the land promise, it's really all the promises are being threatened as Abr Abram leaves the land and he goes to war, remember, to retrieve Lot. 
He leaves the land. He goes out there. He goes into combat. And so all the promises are threatened when Abram does that. Well, then, of course, we know how that ends up. He ends up winning a miraculous victory, and he's actually enriched because of this. It's a, it's a, he's blessed by Melchizedek and, and restored to the land and all that. And so that threat has passed. And then in chapter 15, we see that once again the seed promise is brought into question. You remember the conversation between God and Abram? When Abram said, I don't have a son, you promised me a son, I don't have one, and so I've got this Eliezer of Damascus. He's, uh, he's in my household, and maybe he's going to be the heir, and so may, may he be the one that you uh, uh, choose as my seed. And so that seed promise is, is challenged there. But instead, God tells him and tells him very clearly, Abram, you yourself will be the father and you will receive the land in due time. So that, that promise had been called into question by Abram, and God answers it and says, no, it's, it's not just some random person from your house. It will be your own child, Abram, who will be the seed. And so you remember what happens in chapter 16. Now we know that Abram is going to be the father, but what ends up happening? Well, Sarai offers Hagar. Since Abram's supposed to be the dad, maybe there's supposed to be a different mother. And so Hagar comes into the picture, and, and uh, you see them uh, coupled up. And so there, once again, you have that seed problem, uh, seed promise is challenged, runs up against a problem there. And, of course, we know how that ended up. And in verse 17, we have uh, this, this seed promise is reaffirmed, it's clarified, where God appears to Abram, and He says, no, Abram, it will be you and Sarah. Okay, let's just be clear who this is. Not a random guy from your household, not an illicit uh, uh, an affair is going to produce this seed, but you, Abraham, and your wife, Sarah, will have a child. That's the seed that I'm talking about. And by the way, in chapter 17, we saw that that's going to happen in about a year. So we can start the clock. Okay? We can start the expectation. They've been waiting decades to this point. We just don't know what uh, what time frame it's going to be, but now in chapter 17, we have the promise it's going to be in about a year. And of course, chapter 18, which we looked at, we saw that that seed promise is reaffirmed, but this time to Sarah. And the message is the same as it was to Abraham. Sarah, it's going to be you and Abraham, your husband, who will bear this child. Yes, I know you're old. Yes, I know you're so old that when you heard that, you laughed at me, but it's going to be you and start your clock, it's going to be in about a year, you will have this child. And so, you have a reaffirmation of that, that promise. So, when we look at the life of Abraham, it starts off so wonderfully. This great promise, I'm going to do these things for you, and it's going to be wonderful. And then we see that it's like a roller coaster in the life of Abraham, right? But we see a peak when we looked back at chapter 19, and we saw that uh, as a result of the, the prayer of Abraham, the intercession of Abraham, where he was talking to God and he was saying, remember, it, it, you said you're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but what if there are 50 righteous people there? Will you, will you destroy the 50 righteous people with the city? Remember that whole haggling that went on? No, I won't for 50. What about if there are you know, only 45 and all the way down? Uh, what if there are only 10 righteous people in that city? Well, there weren't 10 righteous people in that city. 
But nevertheless, God heard his prayer, and God sent those angels, and God rescued Lot and his family in that situation. So we see already that one of the promises, remember, made back to Abraham back in chapter 12 is that he would be a blessing. And here he was a blessing to Lot and his family as God answered those prayers and spared Lot from the destruction of the city. And so we see the beginning of a, of a, of a fulfillment. We see that uh, the, uh, he's, he's beginning to be a blessing. So maybe things are turning up for Abraham, right? Maybe, maybe Abraham has been through the toughest time, right? You know those times in your life where you look back on maybe it was your 20s, maybe it was your 30s, I don't know, maybe it was your 60s, I don't know, where you thought that was a tough decade. That was a tough period, and then things got better. Well, maybe we've gotten through the tough period with Abraham. And so we'll have to see here in chapter 20 whether we've gotten through the tough period or not. But as we look at uh, chapter 20 and start looking at this passage that we have before us, we're going to see that we haven't gotten through the tough period yet. We see that God is indeed going to preserve His promise, but it's going to be despite some things. And first of all, in this first paragraph, we see that God's promise is preserved despite Abimelech. Right? So we have Abraham and his family, and they, they, are, they have moved on from where they were by the Oaks of Mamre, and they've, they've uh, traveled to the west a little bit. They're still within the land of Canaan, kind of in border territory, but they're still in the land of Canaan, and, uh, and they've moved down to Gerar. And so they, they are living down there, and, and you remember what happened at the end of chapter 12 where, where Abram, who was uh, afraid for his life, told his wife to say, you're my sister. This is my brother, so that they'll spare me because, because you're a beautiful woman, and when they see you and they find out I'm the husband, they'll just kill me, and they'll just take you, and I want to live, so just tell them that you're my sister, that I'm your brother. Well, you'd think that was like the beginning of the story, and it was, and here we are decades later, and by the way, she's 90, and this is the story they're using again, right? So you see that they're using... Uh, the same, the same uh, pl- uh, ploy to try and uh, spare Abraham's life here, right? And so, of course, the result there is that Abimelech, the king of Gerar, he sent and he took Sarah, right? Not a surprise to us who have read chapter 12. We've seen this happen before, and he, he, he goes and gets her and, and, uh, and brings her to himself. Um, but God, verse 3, came to Abimelech in a dream by night and spoke to him. So this is, this is egregious enough that God has appeared in a dream to Abimelech, king of Gerar, and speaks to him at night about this situation. And this is what God says. Imagine if you'd like to have a dream like this. Behold, you are a dead man. Right? We think the revelation of God would be, you know, give peace and joy, and this didn't give peace or joy. <laughs> Abimelech, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. That would have been startling to Abimelech. That would have been uh, something that would cause you to wake up in panic. That would be uh, something that would, that would scare you to death for God himself to speak to you in a dream, and his message is, you're dead because of what you've done. You have taken this woman, 
she belongs to another man. And so the punishment is clearly spelled out there. You are a dead man. But it's interesting. Look at verse 4. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. Now, this isn't just Abimelech who's guilty saying, oh, I, I didn't do anything. I, I didn't really do anything. No, this is the narrator telling us the facts. He had not approached her. Yes, he had sent, and yes, he had taken her. But he had not approached her. And that's impressive. We don't know at this point why that is the case. We're going to find out later it's because of illness in the house. That he's not able to approach her. But at this point, we don't know. But the fact is, he has not approached her. And so he makes his defense. (laughs) Abimelech had not approached her, and he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? It's interesting he didn't say, will you kill an innocent man? I think probably coming hard on the heels of, of chapter 19 and what had happened there with Sodom and Gomorrah and the massive destruction, that would have been well known in the area for fire and brimstone to rain out of heaven and destroy the the towns and the whole surrounding region. That would be something that people knew about. And so maybe he was thinking, oh no, I've crossed that same God. So will you destroy an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So Abimelech is thinking fast, and and he's uh, at this point probably very thankful, but he, he, he recognizes that he's actually innocent. Now, he did send for her. He did take her, but he's not approached her, and he did so based upon false pretenses. I thought she was just sister of this man. She actually said it herself, he's my brother. I haven't done anything wrong, or at least I haven't done what I have been accused of. So his, his defense that he gives is based upon those two premises, is that one is that they claim to be brother and sister, so I didn't know, and then the other is I didn't approach her anyway, right? So I'm innocent in this situation. And look at verse 6. God tells us, very interestingly, why it was that he hadn't approached him. God tells us in this situation why it was, how it could be that Abimelech could be innocent. God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. We see the the providence of God at work in an unexpected way in this situation. Here is this man who has great integrity. In fact, as we look through this whole story and you compare the integrity of Abraham with the integrity of Abimelech, Abimelech's the guy you want as your neighbor, not Abraham, at least in this story. Abimelech is the one with integrity. Abimelech is the one who is innocent. And how can that be? How is it this, that this man has uh, such integrity or uh, was, pre- was, was prevented from approaching her? God says it's because of what I did. I kept you from approaching her. Now we know 
because we're going to finish the rest of the story today, we know that it was because of an illness that, that, that was going around in the family that made it so that Abimelech couldn't approach her. God had given an illness. God had, had put this illness in the family, and it had, it had all kinds of consequences. And one of those was that it kept Abimelech from sin. Did you know that God has the power to keep sinners from sin? He has the ability to do that. I don't know that we have categories in our minds for that all the time, but that's what God says. He says, yes, I know you're innocent because I made it so, and therefore I did not let you touch her. God was at work. God was at work preserving His promise that He had made to Abraham and Sarah despite Abimelech. Now, what do you think a king would do if a family travels into town and it's just a brother and sister and very wealthy? And he takes her into his, into his family. Of course, he's going to marry her. Of course, there's nothing to bar him from taking her for himself except God alone. God works to preserve in this situation, to preserve and keep his promise despite Abimelech. And then God tells him what he wants him to do there in verse 7. He says, now then return the man's wife. Give her back. I know you haven't approached her, but you've got to give her back. For he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, excuse me, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So yes, I know you're innocent, but you've got to give her back. This man is a prophet. If you don't give her back, you're going to die and everyone around you is going to die. So he's highly motivated to send him back. But it's interesting, he says, he, he, he explains who Abraham is, and this is the first use of the word prophet in the Bible, right? We think of the prophets, we think Elijah, uh, we think Isaiah, right? We think of John the Baptist, right? These are, these are great men who did great things. And here we have this man who just lied about his wife, called her his sister to spare his own skin, and God points to him and says he's a prophet. There's irony here. There's irony here about the man Abraham, his character, and yet his position. And so God says, you've got to give her back, otherwise there are going to be massive consequences. And so you see right off the bat that God's promise is preserved despite Abimelech, despite the power, the opportunity of this man Abimelech, God has worked in such a way to keep his promise, to preserve his plan. But we see second of all here that, that God's promise is preserved despite Abraham also. And remember the promise was made to Abraham, but look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things and the men were much afraid. Now, If you, if you can go back a couple of weeks or you can just remember all the way back to uh, to Genesis chapter 19, and when the angels were there proclaiming to Lot what was going to happen, we need to get out of town, we need to get out of town right now. Destruction is coming. God has sent us to destroy this place. You need to get your sons-in-law and your family, and you need to get out of town right now. And Do you remember what it says about Lot? He lingered. Here's Lot, whom the New Testament calls righteous, is lingering when God has given his warning. But here we see 
this man Abimelech, he rose early in the morning after this dream, called all of his servants together and told them what was going on, and they were afraid too. A very unusual circumstance. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then Abimelech called Abraham, having warned his people, having talked to his own people. Abimelech called Abraham and said to them, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. So he's complaining to him. He, he calls him to himself and he says, why did you do this? Why, why would you lie like this? Why would you treat us this way? Why would you trick us, entrap us into this kind of a great sin? And Bimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? What would cause you to behave this way? Now, I, I don't I don't see any indication here other than Abimelech's character, I don't, I don't, which is exemplary, but he's not a believer. Here you've got this situation where Abimelech, a foreign king, is calling out a prophet of Yahweh for his lack of integrity. Christian, have you ever had a non-Christian call you on your lack of integrity? Have you ever had a non-Christian, maybe a neighbor or, 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 or someone in your circle who looked at you and said, I can't believe you would do that, when in fact you really had done that? I've had that happen, and it'll wound you deeply. And it should strike a chord here as we hear Abimelech saying to him, what did you see? What would cause you to do this thing? Well, we see the answer that, that Abraham gives. And his, his answer is, is telling. He says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. So the prophet of God says, I lied. I tricked you into sin. I set up this situation that of course you were going to fall for. I did it because I thought there was no fear of God in this place. I did it because I thought there was no integrity here. Abraham, why did you lack integrity? Because I thought there was no integrity here. You hear the irony? It turns out as we read the Bible that the, the heroes of the Bible aren't the heroes. It's the God of the Bible who is the hero. And the men and the women of God continually show themselves to fall short. And this situation is no different. Now, we, we've talked before about the fear of the Lord. And Abraham says, I thought there was no fear of God in this place. And I want to draw just a brief distinction between those two things. When we talk about fear of God... I think what's being discussed here is a, is a recognition that God is powerful, that God is holy, and God is not someone to be crossed. And therefore, I better mind my P's and Q's or He's going to get me. I don't want judgment, so I'm going to do these things. Right? That's, that's a fear of God in this sense. It's a, it's, it's, you're afraid that you're, going to, that you're going to get in trouble, so you behave in a certain way because you don't want God mad at you. 
The fear of the Lord is very different. The fear of the Lord is a recognition that God really is powerful and He really is holy. That He, he really does render judgment. That He has the right to do so. But there's an added level. Remember we talked last week about the fact that we recognize that He is such a God and yet we have this covenant relationship with Him. That He has made Himself our God and He has made us His children. So that when we think about what He is like, yes, we behave in such a way that is in accord. We, we desire to behave in a way that is honoring to Him, but not because we think He's going to get us, but because He's our Father. Because we love Him and He loves us. And so we want to behave in a certain way. In this situation here, Abraham, who has shown at certain times a great fear of the Lord and will show at later times a great fear of the Lord, Yet his reason for lying, his, his reason for deceiving those around him in this situation is because he thinks there is no fear of God in this place. And yet those he accuses of having no fear of God behave with far greater integrity than him. There's great irony in this passage. Abimelech is a, a great man, humanly speaking. Abraham says, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. They're going to take my wife. They're going to kill me. It's the same old fear that he's had his whole life. Proverbs tells us that the, the wicked run when no one's chasing them. And I think that's the situation going on here, that he is afraid of something that's not actually there. Verse 16, besides, so here's, here's where he shows off his, his degree in law, Okay. Besides, uh, she really is indeed my sister. She's the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife, right? So he's defending himself in another way. First of all, he says, well, I thought you were such bad people that I ought to act uh, badly around you to, uh, to escape problems. But by the way, also, she is actually my sister, right? He's playing the attorney. Well, who cares if she's your sister? The point is, she's your wife, and the reason he uh, encouraged her to say that they were brother and sister, and the reason that he himself said, she's my sister, is because he wanted them to believe that they were not husband and wife. He lied. He wanted them to believe something that was untrue. And so he couched it in certain terms and tries to defend himself here. Well, she really, you know, she really is my sister. If you, if you check the birth records, you know, technically... Right? He's arguing for his own innocence, but he's not innocent. He has willfully deceived Abimelech and those around him. And when God caused me, verse 13, to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. We've tried this before, and we lived through it, so I guess it's worth trying again. That's kind of his thinking. So we see here that, that God's promise is preserved despite Abimelech. Maybe even more so, God's promise is preserved despite Abraham. What a story. What a sordid story we have in this passage Look at verse 14, and we see actually that God's promise is preserved by means of both. Yes, despite 
Abimelech. And yes, despite Abraham, but actually God in His wisdom and in His, His, His providential working, He preserves His promise by means of both of those two as well. What do I mean? Look at verse 14. Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell in it where you please. Right? So here we have a situation where Abraham becomes blessed. Abraham is blessed despite his disobedience, and he's blessed by Abimelech, the very man he tricked. He enriches him. He gives him flocks and herds. He, he, he gives him servants. He, he gives him the run of the land. Wherever you want to live, live there. All right? So we have very great blessing to Abraham at the hand of Abimelech. And then we see Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell in it where you please. But to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone, you are vindicated. So not only the flocks and the herds, not only the run of the land, but a thousand pieces of silver to prove her innocence. Right? To, to us, maybe when we read it, it, it almost looks like he's buying them off, like giving them hush money or something like that. But he says, no, it's so that everyone will look and recognize because of the exorbitant sum, a thousand pieces of silver, I don't know exactly how to, how to calculate that. It's some number of years, uh, perhaps numbers of lifetimes of a, of a uh, daily wage for a day worker. It's uh, a thousand pieces of silver was the bride price among the gods in the pagan cultures. This is, this is an extreme amount of money that's being given. Not just generous, not just enough to, to, to buy their silence or something like that. It shows that... that that Abimelech really, really means this lady is so important, this couple is so important and so valued, look at the amount of money that I have given them. This ought to prove their innocence. So God is using Abimelech to enrich this couple, this couple that has just lied to him. They are evidence. They are, they are being enriched in, in God keeping His promise by means of Abimelech. And then you see verse 17, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You see, they, it's true that they had initially been cursed, as it were, because the barren woman came to town, and now all, everyone there is barren. But it's not just that she came to town. It's that she came to town, and she lied, and then she was taken by Abimelech into this household. And now there's barrenness all around. There's, there's something going on. There's some kind of illness that makes it so they can no longer have children. And how is it that they are healed from that? It's not just, well, let's remove uh, Sarah and get her out of there. God had said, have Abraham pray for you. He's a prophet. So Abraham prays, and God hears the prayer. And so here you have the nations being blessed by Abraham. This barrenness is removed. The, the illness, whatever it was, is there, uh, is, is gone now because 
Abraham has, has prayed. And so you see a very intricate story where problems were caused, threats to the promise were caused by Abimelech, and threats were, were caused by Abraham, and yet God used Abraham and Abimelech actually to bring about the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises. That Abraham, who had been told, you're going to have this land, now has run of the land, at least in that, in that region. Because Abimelech, who owned the land, said, live wherever you want. We're seeing the beginning of the fulfillment of the land promise already. So what do we, what do we make of this? I said at the beginning that I, my desire is that we would come away with hope in this situation. What are the implications? What, uh, what are the implications for us as we read through this? Uh, first of all, just a, a couple of questions. Uh, one is, what does this episode teach us about God? When we read through this chapter and it's confusing and we're amazed that they would be able to do uh, such wicked things and, 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 and whatnot, but what do we learn about God? Well, first of all, God holds the power of life and death. It's in His hand. It's in His Word. He holds the power of life and death. He can open and close wombs. He appears to Abimelech and says, you're a dead man. And did God have the, the, the power and authority to bring it about? Oh, yeah. And he had the power and authority to heal him. He had the power and authority to open wombs, which, by the way, ought to be an encouragement for Abraham and Sarah. You know, I, th- I think about Abraham praying for the wombs to be open in Gerar. Well, he's had a lot of experience pl- praying for wombs to be open, hasn't he? These are 25 years he's been praying uh, for Sarah, probably more than that. And of course, that prayer has never been answered. But here he comes and he prays and God gives life where there had not been life before. God has the power of life and death. Deuteronomy 32, God says, There is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That's who we're dealing with. But secondly, what do we learn about God? God really does cause all things to work together for the good of His people. We know Romans 8, 28, and we quote that, and we quote it to each other when we're going through difficult times, and we quote it to ourselves when we're going through difficult times, but here we see it played out that God uses all things, even their own sin, in the end, for their good. How can that be? It's because He is such a God. He ends up enriching them. He ends up giving this land. He ends up preserving and protecting them and actually promoting them in the midst of, and even as the result of this terrible situation they've gotten themselves into. Christian, have you gotten yourself into some trouble? Have you, have you said some things? Have you, have you taken some, made some choices in your life, taken some paths that that you really wish you wouldn't have, and if you had it to do over again, you'd do it differently? And you wonder, can any good come out of it? I mean, maybe I've ruined it. Maybe I've made it so God can't accomplish good for me anymore. We could quote quote Romans 8.28, and we do. And this is an illustration of Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So that's what 
This episode teaches us about God, and there's more in there we could learn. But, but secondly, what does this episode teach us about God's promises? Remember, the whole thing started with God's promises. What do we learn about God's promises? We learn that God will do what it takes to bring His promises to pass, regardless of any cooperation of His people, regardless of even opposition of His people, opposition by His people. God will accomplish His promises. And I think the gospel is the ultimate example of this. This whole story is, is built around the promise of the seed and this, this couple who they're getting older and they're, they're beyond any reasonable expectation that they're actually going to have a child, but God said you're going to have a child. And then He says you're going to have a child within a year. So now they're waiting and watching, which heightens the irony of why they would do what they did since they should be waiting and watching now. The promise has been built around the idea of this child the expected child. Well, of course, Isaac is going to be born in, in just, just a couple chapters, right? We're not far from Isaac being born, but is Isaac the ultimate seed? No, he's not the end of the promise. He is a seed. He is a child. But we get to the New Testament, we learn that actually the seed, the ultimate seed of promise is Christ Himself. That He's, he's the one who, who, who's to d- deliver His people, to fulfill these promises that have been made to Abraham. Well, he shows up on the scene. He's born. He's, he's, he's raised, having dodged the, the difficulties and, and the threats when, when he was a child. And he comes on the scene and he begins to minister. So you'd think, well, the, the seed of, of, of Abraham is now on the scene and is teaching the people, this is going to be great, right? It's, we're going to see the fulfillment, the keeping of these promises. And he faced opposition at every turn. There was, a, there was a mixed response at best. So Jesus is there teaching, and, and, and inevitably he's got the this, this spiritual leaders, the religious leaders stand up and say, wow, Jesus, I mean, you know, you can't say that. You can't teach that stuff, Jesus. Did you know actually that Jesus, this guy, is, he's demon-possessed, and, and he's actually just a drunkard, and he's the opposition that stood against him, right, throughout his ministry. God's people standing against the promise of God all the way up to the point where actually it takes him to the cross, where, where they, they don't just say mean things about him. They don't just try to disregard him and, and try and cancel him or, or whatever. They actually want him arrested and they want him killed. And they succeed. And he's killed. The Son of God hangs on that cross. And hearts were broken, those who had such expectation in their Messiah. And now he's dead on the cross. God's promise must have failed. And for days, that thought hangs. God's promise must have failed. We must have misunderstood, and the promise is not really in Jesus. But of course, you and I know the rest of the story, that on the third day, God raised Him from the dead. God God did the miraculous that that restored him to to new life, raised him from the dead. And and we learn as we read the teaching of the New Testament that actually it was that very opposition to Jesus. It was that very 
crucifixion of Jesus and resurrection of Christ, where, where it looked like the promises of God had just gone to rubble. That's where our greatest victory is. That the people you would expect to be the ones cheering the Messiah stood against Him and put Him to death, and that was a terrible tragedy. And it was the greatest victory that means you and I, by faith in Him, can have life. Without Him doing that, without that happening, you and I would not have life. God really does cause all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Even when it's impossible, He does it. And this picture here in Genesis chapter 20 indicates that to us. God keeps His promise. What does this episode teach us about ourselves? Well, simply, we are not the heroes of the story. God is the hero of the story. As I read through this, I, I kind of identify with Abraham, even less so maybe with Abimelech. I identify with Abraham, and he's the, he's the main bad guy in the story. God is the hero. God is the one who keeps the promises. God is the one who sees them through this thing, though they had failed at every turn. He gives the victory. God is the hero of the story. I think when we look at this story and think about our own lives, I give Abraham a hard time, but I identify with him a lot. His, his faith, his confidence, his trust wavered like mine has wavered at times. When faced with a difficulty, I'm tempted to deceive to get out of it. I'm tempted to find a way to argue like an attorney. Well, you know, technically I could get out of this by doing this thing. I'm tempted that way, and that's not just true of me. It's true of any of us. We are not the hero of our Christian life. Christ is the hero of our Christian life. So what's the application? What's the application that we can make from our passage here? Just a couple of simple ones, simple to say and write down, maybe a little less simple to accomplish, but fear the Lord, not man. Abraham had enough information. He had enough history and experience with God to have understood going into this situation. God is able to protect me in this situation. And that's what he should have done. Folks, you and I have far more information than he had. And so let's trust the Lord. Let's fear him and not fear man. Again, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We understand the truth of the situation. Abimelech's power is this big, and God is all-powerful. So let's fear God instead. Let's, let's understand who He is, and let's rejoice in the fact that we get to be His children. The children of such a God. And let's walk in fear of Him. And finally, take comfort that your sin, that your failure has not derailed God's plan and providence. He is accomplishing His purposes. 
So take comfort. So I don't know, I don't know what you walked in here with this morning. I don't know what your history has been. I don't know what your recent history has been or, or anything like that. But sometimes we can, we can look at the ideal, we can look at the great expectations, and then we remember ourselves. And we think, well, that would have been nice. Wouldn't it have been great if I hadn't failed in these ways? But folks, we have failed. But you and I are not the hero of the story. We are not the one the story depends upon. We are not the one in charge of keeping God's promise. God keeps His promises. So may you and I take great comfort. May you and I take great hope in our own Christian life that that He will fulfill His promises. He will accomplish His plans. And what a joy that is. What peace there is found in that. If my story ultimately depends upon me, it's going to be a train wreck. But my story and your story and Abraham's story ultimately depends upon almighty and faithful God. And there we can have hope. Let's pray. Father, we have uh, dealt with another difficult passage, another instance in the lives of your people, even, even the, this hero of the faith, this Abraham who has such great faith, yet, yet this man of faith, the father of faith, had such a, a crack in his faith that he would lie to a foreign king and encourage his wife to lie to a foreign king about their relationship to spare his neck. And I can relate. Where would I be willing to bend the truth, to spare my neck, to spare conflict perhaps, to spare a difficult conversation or perhaps a break in relationship? If we think about it, we are in this story And we are Abraham and Sarah. And Father, I take very great comfort knowing that You are the hero of the story. Knowing that You who have made Your promises that that You will finish in me what You have begun. That Jesus said that He would take all those given to Him and raise them up on the last day. And that is every one of us who has faith in Christ. And so though we have failed in our stories, though we uh, cannot cannot carry the story, we, we rest in Christ and take comfort and joy in Him, the one who carries the story all the way to the end. And we find comfort and peace and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, thank you for joining us today. There's going to be a family up front who would love to pray with you if you want to pray with them. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.